You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the five contexts of biblical interpretation. Now, let me say up front uh, a couple things. First of all, I want to say that this podcast is sponsored by and brought to you by my business, North Max Services. We handle all sorts of web design, graphics, uh, and marketing-related projects. And that business very literally supplies the resources needed in order to run this ministry. So frankly, one of the best ways that you can support what we're doing here at the ministry is to use our business for things like website design or even logo and graphic design. Or if you have needs related to email marketing or social media marketing, things of that nature, I'd be glad to have a conversation with you about that. That's what I do for a living. So I would love to have that conversation with you and see where we can take your business. Just go to NorthMacServices.com. That is www.NorthMac, all one word, services.com, spelled exactly like it sounds. And it would be our pleasure to do work with you. We've worked with nonprofits, businesses, ministries, and all other sorts of organizations in the work we do. So I invite you to check that out if you are in need of services to that end. The second thing I want to say is that this particular podcast episode is going to be an excerpt from my upcoming book. Now, I'm still going to uh, kind of read and comment on it. In other words, I'm not just going to read straight through it like a robot. Uh, We're going to actually have some discussion uh, around these items, but note that the outline is definitely taken from this upcoming book that I have on how uh, to fall in love with the Bible. And I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm working on it a little slower than I had uh, intended on, but it is being worked on. And so this is going to be an excerpt from that. The final thing I'll say here in uh, way of kind of an introduction is that uh, when it comes to this idea of context, you know, there are certain concepts and things that come to mind that involve, you know, grammar, genre, literary devices, other linguistic features, and things of that nature. Uh, But there's more to the story than that. Um, And, you know, even the more astute individuals will go beyond these things to include extra biblical historical references and, uh, you know, figuring out where the text is situated within the larger context of the canon of scripture. So there are many different things that could be said when it comes to this issue of context. And the reason I want to kind of preface this here is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that there are five, right? I'm saying there are five contexts of scripture that we need to pay attention to. Well, the reality is that no matter who you talk to, you're probably going to get a little different view of that. I mean, there are some people who would not want to say there are five different kinds of context. And then there are probably some who would want to say uh, that there are 10 or more. So what we're hoping to do here in this particular episode is to outline a few helpful categories that I think that if we if we look for the context in each of these sort of categories, then we will be able to come to a reasonable understanding of a particular portion of scripture. That's the point. So 
while you would maybe get it parsed out and maybe even cashed out a little different way between me and somebody else, I think that this will be a helpful overall look and will provide a grid for you to use when you're seeking to study and understand the Bible. And of course, also to help you understand how others might be looking at things poorly or deficiently or maybe even better when they're examining scripture. These are some factors that should be considered in that evaluation. Now, every one of those concepts I mentioned above, right? Grammar, genre, literary devices, linguistic features, historical references. These are all very important things and they ought to be considered. But my point is that it goes deeper than that. It's more pervasive. There's more to the story of a particular portion of the text than just those things. Now, again, let me just reiterate a little different way here that theologians choose to think about this differently, right? Different people think about this differently. And so rather than thinking there's a particular method to follow, it's more as though there's a matrix of ideas that should be intentionally considered when you're examining the text. So we'll briefly discuss these five categories that I believe helpfully summarize the variety of contexts that must be considered when approaching the text of the Bible. First of these is the spiritual context. The spiritual context. Now here the word supernatural would also be appropriate. Now the Bible is a book, right? Simply put, that reports supernatural events. The Bible is a book that reports supernatural events. Naturalism does not go with the biblical worldview. It does not. They're diametrically opposed to one another. When we talk about naturalism, it is something entirely other than anything that you could possibly arrive at via an exploration of the biblical record. And this is very important because many of us come from Christian traditions that have a predisposed bias against the supernatural. Now, what do I mean by that? Because that sounds odd, right? That that the Bible is is basically at its in its most basic form a supernatural book, but but many Christians are predisposed against the supernatural. Um, something's going on there, right? Well, yeah. Um, it depends on what you mean by the word supernatural. Well. I want to describe kind of what I mean when I say that term, spiritual, supernatural, when it comes to the context of the Bible. And uh, we could launch into a, a book length, probably, a treatise on this. But instead, uh, I'm going to just try to help you grasp the basic idea with a lengthy quote from Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, he wrote the book called Supernatural. So I'm going to give you this quote from that, and I think it will kind of help situate my thinking with you, and you can uh, see whether or not you agree. Quote, I'm not talking about the big stuff, such as whether Jesus was God come to earth, who then died on the cross and rose from the dead. I'm not even thinking of miracle stories like the Exodus, when God rescued Israel from Egypt by making a way for them through the Red Sea. Most Christians would say they believe those things. After all, if you don't believe in God and Jesus, or that they could do miraculous things, what's the point of saying you're a Christian? I'm talking about the little-known supernatural stuff you run into occasionally when reading the Bible, but rarely hear about it in church. Here's an example. In 1 Kings 22, 
There's a story about a wicked king of Israel, Ahab. He wants to join forces with the king of Judah to attack an enemy at a place called Ramoth Gilead. Judah's king wants a glimpse into the future. He wants to know what's going to happen if they attack. So the two kings ask Ahab's prophet and get thumbs up all around. But those prophets are just telling Ahab what he wants to hear, and both kings know it. So they decide to ask God's prophet, a fellow named Micaiah. What he says isn't good news for Ahab. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward, and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. That was First Kings twenty two, nineteen through twenty three. Did you catch what the Bible is asking you to believe? We're still reading Heiser here, by the way. That God meets with a group of spirit beings to decide what happens on earth? Is that for real? Here's another example, courtesy of Jude. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jude 1.6 God sent a bunch of angels into an underground prison Really? As I said, the Bible has a lot of strange things in it, especially about the unseen spiritual world. I've met many Christians who have no trouble with the Bible's less controversial, at least among Christians, teaching about the supernatural, such as who Jesus was and what he did. But passages like this tend to make them more than a little uneasy. So they ignore them. I've seen that tendency up close. My wife and I once visited a church where the pastor was preaching a series based on 1 Peter. The morning he hit 1 Peter 3, 18-22, the first thing he said after getting behind the pulpit was, we're going to skip these verses. They're just too weird. What he meant by weird was that those verses contained supernatural elements that just didn't fit into his theology, such as, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. 1 Peter 3, 18-20 Now, who and where were those imprisoned spirits? spirits. That pastor either didn't know or didn't like the answer, so he simply chose to ignore those verses. As a Bible scholar, I've learned that strange passages and lots of other little-known and little-understood parts of Scripture are actually very important. They teach specific ideas about God, the unseen world, and our own lives. 
Believe it or not, if we were aware of them and understood what they meant, as difficult and puzzling as they are, it would change the way we think about God, each other, why we're here, and our ultimate destiny. Close quote. So the more that I study the Bible personally, the more convinced I am that we need to take very seriously the biblical claims about the unseen world. There is a delicate balance, I think, between conspiracy theory and fact. And this has been revealed to be so true when it comes to some of the global issues that we have been facing in the world around us these days. Um, It really is hard to tell perception from uh, reality. And, you know, there's some people who take this stuff, this biblical stuff that we're talking about too far, um, and they see the devil behind every decision that they don't agree with, okay? And I think that is mistaken. Equally mistaken is those others who, uh, as Dr. Heiser lamented, ignore it altogether. Truth is so rarely found in the extremes. Very rarely. So what we have what we're dealing with here is a real unseen spiritual reality that must be dealt with. But you know, it's easy for people to brush this stuff off. It's unseen after all, right? Uh, And to admit the reality um, would just be hard for some people based on the way that they have been brought up. Now, if that's you, let me remind you of the Apostle Paul's words. Finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 6, a very well-known portion of Scripture. But how often we find ourselves fighting the wrong battles. We tear down other people instead of realizing the true enemy to be the devil and his minions. So we need to keep focus on that. A firm grasp on the unseen world is a necessary, therefore, I think, precursor to understanding your Bible and, and frankly, even being a fruitful Christian. Next up is the political context, the political context. Now, this one and the next contextual marker are going to make something very, very clear here. And uh, it, it is that which makes, I think, the biblical worldview so very interesting, is the extent to which it is situated inside of real history. That's the really striking bit of information that counterbalances that last intellectual marker, namely that the Bible is riddled with echoes from another world. For biblical writers, and this is crucial here, there is not a sharp distinction between the otherworldly and this world. That, That just simply does not exist. They are interconnected and they affect each other in extremely significant ways. And frankly, understanding what's happening in the real world around the biblical writers, and especially in the political sphere, is very important for understanding much of the prophetic material in the Bible and helpful for grounding biblical events 
in the events of the day. So take, for example, Pontius Pilate. Here's what the Baker Encyclopedia has to say about him. Quote, appointed by Tiberius as the fifth prefect of Judea and who served in that capacity from A.D. 26 to 36. He appears prominently in the trial narratives of the gospel as the Roman governor who authorized Jesus's crucifixion. In addition, he appears in a variety of extra-biblical sources as a dispassionate administrator who relentlessly pursued Roman authority in Judea. Close quote. Now, those extra-biblical mentions that are uh, well-mentioned there include the Roman writer Tacitus. Now, Tacitus places Pontius Pilate in direct connection with the crucifixion of Jesus and also the Jewish historian Josephus, who describes three different uh, incidents, excuse me, during the career of the prefect. This kind of information not only helps us date biblical information, but also contributes massively to the reliability and the authenticity of the scriptures. I mean, this is one of those things that help us to ground, helps us to ground biblical events in the events of the day. In other words, in real history, in actual reality. Now, of course, if the scriptures report to us about the most insignificant of details, then why not think that they would report reliably about the important ones? To cherry pick information like this is to just credit the biblical writers with precisely, get this, this is, this is just one of those amazing things to me. It's to credit the, the biblical writers with the level of intellect and acumen that skeptics want to deny to them in other contexts. In other words, they would say in contexts where they are trying to, uh, in a sense, mock the Bible or at the very least discredit the Bible, that you know the Bible was just written by very ignorant people, by people who were not very literate. They uh, were, one, as one um, particularly crass gentleman says, um, the Bible was written by ignorant goat herders, you know, that kind of a thing. So, but then on the other hand, right, on the other hand, they will come in here and say things like this. And what people don't realize is that if you study these issues out, in order for them to have fabricated things, in order for them to be able to parse out and be able to make things up about the uh, insignificant or the, excuse me, the more significant details of the Bible while getting the insignificant ones right in some sort of intentional deception, that would be to credit them with an extreme amount of literacy and acumen and ability in their writing. And that would seem to go contrary to what they want to say, again, in those other contexts. So this is kind of one of those things where you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to say that the Bible is the product of um, this sort of, of, of skeptical, or uh, maybe a better way to say it would be this sort of intentional deception, then you're going to have to credit the writers of the Bible with the level of acumen that would allow them to write intelligibly and truthfully about these other things. So if the goal is to deal fairly with the data, then we have to consider this political context because it will be immensely helpful to understanding what's going on in scripture at that point.
Now, another similar note to that is this next contextual marker, which is the cultural context. The Bible was written, again, in a particular time and place. Different parts of the Bible were different in a, written in, in a particular time and place. So understanding more about that particular time and place, uh, again, in which a particular passage of Scripture was written, is very helpful in determining its authorship, whether editorial hands were monkeying with the text or not, and other things. And we must also understand that the biblical writers were not stupid, right? They were not stupid. They were very literate people. They read things and they wrote things. And they just didn't have access to the kind of information that we have today. So that's something we have to keep in mind. We have to approach the Bible when we are looking for new information or we are looking to to glean information from it. We have to understand that they think about many things differently than we do because they didn't have access to the kind of information that we did. For example, the Bible makes much use of something called phenomenological language. Uh, where there is not scientific accuracy and precision in something like that we would have today, what we must understand is that they were reporting things as they saw them, and in some cases how they believed them to be. So, again, the Bible is not going to report things with as strict of accuracy and precision as we would like. And so it's going to use this underdeterminative or phenomenological language in many instances. They write things as they see them and as they believe them to be, even if it differs from our current understanding. And uh, there are some who would want to take this further than I want to take it, okay? I think there are um, anyway, I, I won't bog us down too, too much, uh, too much with that, but it, it's demonstrably true. Okay. That there are things that they believed the world to be like that, uh, we know the world is not like that today. And the way that it is presented in scripture, it's not as though this makes the Bible to be, um, in error. It just reflects worldview considerations of their day. So here's just one example. So for ancient cultures, the center of consciousness was not the brain. Rather, it was the bowels, okay? You can see Jeremiah 17.10 for example. Now, let me, let me just, you know, kind of reiterate here. Some are going to take this concept and just run with it, okay? And they'll suggest things like uh, that the ancient Israelites, for example, uh, purportedly held this idea of a three-tiered cosmology, supposedly in con- uh, concordance with their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. And that, of course, that cosmology would include a flat earth and a solid dome above and things of that. Now, I disagree with this interpretation, as do many other scholars with training in ancient Near Eastern thought. The evidence suggests that not all ancient cultures actually held a similar conception of the sky. In fact, there were many different ideas of this. And where we do find cultures with those beliefs, they seem to be inextricably tied to their theology. They have mainly a theological and etiological sort of concerns. 
And one uh, place you can read more about this is Vern Poitras' paper, uh, Three Modern Myths in Interpreting Genesis. Just Google that, Vern Poitras, Three Modern Myths in Interpreting Genesis. Genesis. Just go check that out, and I think you will uh, appreciate the way that he he thinks uh, about that. So a serious effort has to be put forward to understand the manners, customs, and and other cultural nuances of the biblical world. And again, this all just works towards loving the Bible for what it is, rather than loving or hating the Bible for something that it isn't. We just like we can't straw man arguments. We can't strawman the Bible. We can't say that we love or that we appreciate or that we honor a Bible that we've manufactured in our minds. We have to deal with the one that God has decided to give us. And so these are things that we have to look at. We have to look at their cultural nuances. We have to look at the way they thought about the world. We have to look at the way that they saw things and think in those terms. And there are I mean, I would venture to say, you know, I mean, I'm an inheritor, so I fully believe that there are no inaccuracies when it comes to those things. I fully believe that the Bible is inspired. It's the perfect word of God, and I have no qualms about that. That is the way that I view it. And to manufacture contradictions where there are none is problematic. Okay, let's move on to the literary context, the literary context context. And now here is where we finally uh, return to some of those considerations that most people think of when we are talking about biblical context. We, we start thinking almost immediately about the literary things, but as we've seen here, there are many other considerations that we should take into account, arguably before we even get down to this level. Now in this category, I'm going to include ideas like genre, literary devices, grammar, parts of speech, syntax, lexical concerns, and even situations, um, or its uh, overall situation rather, within the biblical canon. Each of these things is going to be very important and certainly warrants uh, attention and it receives attention in a proper hermeneutics book. Now, as hopefully it's been made clear to you so far, it really does seem to me that these things alone are dramatically insufficient, dramatically insufficient for understanding the biblical text. Don't get me wrong, they are helpful, they are necessary, they are needed, but them alone in, in exclusivity are insufficient for understanding what's actually going on. Um, there are some things that you can exegete the daylights out of, and unless you understand its situation within the context of the Bible, you're just not going to come to the actual meaning as the writers and as the hearers, as the original audience would have understood. Interpreting the Bible is therefore more of a holistic enterprise. It will include the study of actual words and their relationship to other words, but even the words are beholden to those cultural, political, and spiritual contexts, again, that we have discussed. Let me give you one example. This is an interesting one of hyperbole. Now, this is a literary device we use all the time to intentionally exaggerate information in order to achieve some desired effect. So if I say, my son's soccer team destroyed the other team last Saturday, right? You don't call the police because my son and his team have committed a serious crime and destroyed other people, literally. That doesn't happen. You don't think in those terms. In fact, the example uh, almost seems silly. But we have to reckon with, we have to understand, we have to come to terms with the presence of this kind of thing in the text of the Bible. 
why not think that they used language in much the same way? They had parts of speech. They had things that they said that were not meant to be taken literally. Okay? That is just the reality of how language works. And Hebrew is no different. The political and cultural contexts, though, now that that is different and those were those were different so that's why it's reasonable to expect that we might see this sort of thing show up in ways that maybe aren't immediately obvious to us especially reading the bible in english so consider the example of deuteronomy 7 1 through 3 this is just one example um of this literary hyperbole but actually it's interesting because it might include two it might include two and i'll, I'll explain my, what i mean here let's read the passage first of all when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess him, and hast cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. So this is the first example. The Hebrew word behind the phrase, and you might have heard this, utterly destroy. Remember, let me read that again. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Okay, this is interesting. The word there, the Hebrew word is ha-harem, ha-harem. And the idea is to devote to destruction, to devote to destruction. So in the conquest accounts, there is very much conversation to, to be had. There's a lot more going on here than just the examination uh, of this one Hebrew word. However, I do want to center in on this, this, this word, um, haharem, because Dr. Um, Paul Copan has done a lot of study. He's a philosopher. He's done a lot of study on this in its ancient Near Eastern context to kind of come to a reasonable understanding of how we should take words like that. How should we take things like that? Is God really telling his people to utterly destroy other people, including you know men, women, children, animals, and the whole nine yards? What is going on there? Well, here is Dr. Copan's take. Quote, Joshua's conventional warfare rhetoric was common in many other ancient Near Eastern military accounts in the 2nd and 1st millennia BC. The language is typically exaggerated and full of bravado, depicting total devastation. The knowing ancient Near Eastern reader recognized this as hyperbole. The accounts weren't understood to be literally true. This language, Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen observes, has misled many Old Testament scholars in their assessment of the book of Joshua. Some have concluded that the language of wholesale slaughter and total occupation, which didn't, from all other indications, actually take place, proves that these accounts are falsehoods. But ancient Near Eastern accounts readily used, utterly, completely destroy, and other obliteration language, even when the event didn't literally happen that way. And that quote is taken from God's, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? And that's by, again, Dr. Paul Copan. Now, in ancient times, hyperbole was often used in, and get this, this makes a lot of sense considering what we just read, military annals. 
military announce. So this makes a lot of sense. It's about bragging rights. It's, it's about bragging rights. The idea is to send a message to readers that we're not playing around. Our team is big. Our team is bad. And our team dominates. We're the big dog in town here, not you. So this is exactly the sense, actually, that I used the term in in my soccer team example. Of course, there's much less literal bloodshed in my soccer team example. But, you know, we just don't often think in these terms. But the evidence is plentiful. Okay, the same was true in a theological sense it, in, in, in this particular concept. And again, this is why that context is so important. Context is just key. Now, this is going to lead us to our second example of hyperbole that might be found in this text. Now, this one's a little bit more uh, controversial, but here we go. Notice that each nation Israel is to defeat is greater and mightier than they, okay? Okay, they are larger than Israel. Now, why might this pose a problem? Here's why. If we take the number of Israelites reported by the text literally, then we end up with geographical and archaeological, frankly, absurdity. That's a problem. Uh, and it's puzzled scholars of the Old Testament for quite a number of years. Now, one proposed solution argues that such inflated numbers are yet another example of ancient hyperbole. And that would be a defense that was given by David Fouts. And by the way, for what it's worth, he's a very conservative Old Testament scholar. He's a young age creationist. He's even written a book about the subject. If you're worried about his, his, his uh, you know, credentials in terms of that, you know, I mean, Dallas Theological Seminary, I mean, he is a sound guy. Uh, and yet he recognizes the presence of this literary hyperbole in the text. And you can see, I've actually got a link to it there, to his paper on this. If you follow along with me uh, on the show notes on the website, you can actually see uh, there in the link on footnote number four, I have a link there for this paper. And it's David Fouts, A Defense of the Hyperbolic Interpretation of Large Numbers in the Old Testament. So I would invite you to check that out. Now, Again, as I mentioned, this is controversial. Um, this opinion of his is actually highly contested. Some are going to suggest that it, along with other proposed solutions, actually may create more problems than taking the numbers at face value. Um, I don't necessarily agree with them there, but uh, um, again, you can check that out for yourself, uh, surely. So such uh, scholars who believe that are just going to simply punt, okay? So what they're going to do is they're going to suggest that um, we just take the text at face value until later on we figure out some way to resolve the problem. Um, you know, they, their thinking is that, well, maybe there's some other consideration that in the future is going to give us a satisfactory answer to this. Well, maybe so. Uh, I don't know, but my point still stands here. The biblical text is a product very largely, yes, of course, of course, a product of divine inspiration and um, God superintended that process. God breathed scripture, inspired scripture, absolutely, but it is a product of the time also in which it was written. And we need to have careful sensitivity to the fact so that we can have a more and proper and accurate interpretation of it. God, listen, this is this is such a crucial point to, to get when it comes to preaching, when it comes to a biblical inspiration, when it comes to somebody writing um, in the context of a ministry. Um, look at God uses people. God uses people. 
God uses people. And people have thoughts. People have feelings. People read. People talk to others. People have worldviews. People have opinions, okay? So we have to understand that there is much nuance to be found in the biblical text just based on the different writers who have taken part in it. So we, we must not diminish the human aspect of the writing of the Bible because it's one of the things that makes it so beautiful in that God used, I mean, think about it. God used his human imagers to create in order to be co-regents, co-rulers with him of the world. How great that and how fitting that God would help use fallen mankind to, to participate in the process of creating and perpetuating God's revelation throughout the earth. It's just an amazing, amazing thought. And because of who God is, because of the nature of God and the character of God, he can superintend that process to create an inerrant and infallible word through the means of fallible mankind. And that's just, it's just amazing just amazing. Okay, this final contextual category that we want to speak about here is the interpretive category. The interpretive category. And again, let me just reiterate at this point that, you know, in a sense, I'm, I'm making these up, right? I've, I've thought about these carefully, and I've thought about the different ways in which we could understand Scripture. And I think these are just five helpful ways of doing it, five helpful categories that kind of encompass the different things we should think about when we approach the text. So this final category has to do with the interpretation and application of the text to the life of the reader. And it's constrained heavily, right? Heavily by each of the categories we've already mentioned. Too many times, Bible study groups get together, and I've, I've seen this. They meet, and they read a text, and they go around the room, and they explain what the text meant to them. This relativizes Bible interpretation. This is not a good approach. This is not a good approach. Yes, we again, we all have thoughts. We read things. We form thoughts and opinions and beliefs based on those things. But anytime we're approaching the text of Scripture, there is no more important exercise than first coming to understand what the Bible is communicating. Yes, we apply truths from the Bible to our lives in different ways. But there is nothing more important than coming to an accurate understanding of it in the first place. Otherwise, that application has the potential to be completely wrong and probably will be and probably will be. And I could get on a, <laughs> on a hobby horse here. But this is why. This is why we have issues when it comes to things like people taking and manipulating the text and making it mean things that it could never mean in its original context because people want to find a way to make this apply to them living right here and right now that, um, it, it, that again, would have nothing to do with the way that it was uh, done when it was first written down and with the intended meaning of the author. So let's be careful about going around the room and talking about what does the Bible mean to me? What does, what does this thing mean to you? Because the meaning is objective. The application is subjective. And that's what we have to understand. We don't want to relativize Bible interpretation. 
So when we're seeking to understand how a concept or a passage or a teaching from the Bible actually does apply to our lives, we have to first reach the proper interpretation of it. Now, in an earlier chapter of the book, I go into Jeremiah 29, 11, which is kind of a favorite of mine, to um, to deal with this subject. And I looked at how there are a couple different ways of interpret, interpreting the text. And, and one of those tends to make God our cosmic life coach. Uh, and the other one, the merciful judge of the universe. Well, you can see, obviously, that one of these is flawed uh, and the other is accurate. But the relativized approach would actually seem to suggest that both interpretations are correct. Um, it just can't be right. It, it just it just can't logically be right. If the text means to teach a particular truth that corresponds to reality, it can only have one meaning, the right meaning, whatever that is. So in that passage, it's obvious which interpretation is correct. God will show mercy on his people, and he has a plan for them. But judgment, by his own hand, comes first. That is the meaning of the text. So we have to start there and figure out, okay, how does that apply to our lives? Well, here's how it applies to our lives. God is the merciful judge of the universe. God makes the rules. What God says goes. But thank God he's a loving God. God has mercy on me. God has mercy on you. And though judgment will come, and though there may be pain, and there may be torture, and there may be trial, and there may be strife that result from the decisions we make and God's righteous judgment of our um of our situation, of our actions, of our disposition toward him, he will still have mercy and there will still be redemption and there will still be salvation. There are consequences for sin. There are consequences for sin and for um, separating yourself from God's ways and from God himself. Um, But as long as you are holding on to him, you don't stop believing. You continue to believe in God. Those who believe will be saved. Those who believe will be saved. And that is just the bottom line. Nobody will be in heaven. I I love this. This is a great way of putting it, I think. You know, people talk about eternal security and things like that. Those are really great conversations to have. I have my my opinions on them. Here's the bottom line, though. Nobody is going to be in heaven who doesn't believe. That's, That's the key. Nobody is in heaven right now who doesn't believe in God. Nobody. As long as they believe, you have to believe. That's what the Bible says. Believe, believe, believe by faith. And those who believe will be in heaven. Those who do not believe will be in hell. It's really, it's really that simple. So this interpretive context is is just so important. It's the one that um, has to be dictated and allowed by the other contexts. We have to make uh, an application from the Bible to our lives. Otherwise, it's threatened to be pretty much um, irrelevant. It has no purchase in our lives. But that application is going to be based always on proper interpretation. They are linked inextricably, okay? They are linked inextricably. Now, as a matter of uh, bringing this to a close here, a proper evaluation and uh, exegesis of the biblical text is going to necessitate, again, the consideration of these contextual parameters. And let me just stress, again, this is so important. If you fail to consider these categories, and again, you can think about them however, but ultimately you're going to have to consider the same concepts, okay? If you fail to consider these, then there's only one conclusion 
that follows, and it's the one I mentioned above. There's only one conclusion. You either love the Bible for what it isn't, or you hate the Bible for what it is. And neither of those are acceptable, for sure. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out of your week, time out of your day, to join us again here on the Bible Nerd Podcast. I'm really excited about the growth that we're seeing, really excited about more people listening in and and more people uh, kind of hopping on um, Nerd Nation and uh, getting into some some nerdology here with me. And uh, I just, man, I love it. It's so fun, I think, to explore these concepts in the Bible. And, you know, the, the beautiful thing is we don't have to agree on everything. There may be some things that I said here that you wholeheartedly agree with. There may be some things that you... I wholeheartedly disagree with. So I'll look forward to maybe having you comment. Uh, you can always go to our uh, our our blog on steveschram.com and you can check out the show notes for these episodes. If you just you know search a word or two from the title uh, there on the main uh, homepage, usually you can get these things to come up. I probably need to start actually coming up with a good way of um, of creating special links for these things and maybe I'll start doing that if I can remember to. Uh, but you know for now if you if you just go there and you search um, uh, five contexts, the number five and then contexts, surely this is going to come up no matter when you're listening to it. Um, you could be years down the road right now, but if you uh, actually go search this on steveschram.com, you're going to find it. It's going to come up and you can follow along in those show notes, get all the links and footnotes and uh, all the resources and everything that I mentioned is right there within the post. So I want to thank you again for coming around. Let me remind you that the efforts here that uh, we, we, we we put forward for you, they come to you free. We don't charge anything for access to this material. They are sponsored by the work I do in my business, Northmax Services. We do website design for nonprofits, small businesses, churches, um, thought leaders. We have kind of worked across the gamut. And so if you have needs in that area, If you're somebody or you know somebody who needs website design work from a good uh, ethical company that can be trusted with your materials and help you even uh, to to increase your digital marketing, we we do that as well. So um, even content creation and social media uh, management and things of that nature, we can pretty much handle all of those things. Our goal is to kind of partner with you in whatever your goals are to move your particular project forward. So I would love to talk to you about that. If that's something you'd be interested in, you can head over to northmacservices.com, northmacservices.com and check out what we have to offer there. Well, God bless you. Next week, we are going to deal with the issue, returning to a creation topic here after uh, a little bit of time, of uh, evolution and abiogenesis, evolution and abiogenesis. These are um, some terms that get thrown around in the creation evolution debate, and I'm looking forward to discussing them with you, see how they're related, how they're not related, what they mean, what they don't mean, and things of that nature. Have a great week. Tell somebody about the podcast. We'll see you next time.